This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with sun. and higher, filling it with song. filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. We care about your world. My guest is Rick Halterman. He's the author of Curriculum of the Soul and Luminescence of the Ordinary. So... Tell me, how did you all do with the fundraiser for the radio station? We did really well. Did you meet your goal? We did. Fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's been amazing how, how supportive our community has been. Well, I think it's because you all are doing good programming. I hope so. I hope, I hope they're enjoying what they're hearing and happy with it, satisfied, inspired. <laughs> Enjoy, you know, whatever, whatever verb or adjective applies. And it may have to do, Tonya, with the fact that you guys aren't in a metropolitan area. And it may be that you're bringing in such unique points of view that most people don't get to hear anymore. Yeah, that would, I think that would apply to new listeners, but our regulars, I think, have become quite accustomed to that with us and you know how it is when you become accustomed to something you kind of take it for granted and when something goes awry you tend to get annoyed you know this kind of sense of entitlement like hey where's my thing here (laughs) (laughs) yeah we were jocelyn and i were just doing a a little book club with john o'donoghue's anamkata and he talked about that very point in this very this section on solitude, how we have grown so accustomed to the ordinary that we don't really even become all that present unless the very thing you just mentioned, there's some kind of disruption with the ordinary. Then we're like, hey, wait a minute, where, where's my program? Yep. We don't realize what we had until we lose it. Yeah, that Joni Mitchell, the line for that Joni Mitchell tune, don't know yep. what we got till it's gone. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So how are you doing with all this craziness going on? Well, I'm <laughs> I'm actually getting pretty used to it, almost taking it for granted. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. I mean, every once in a while, you know, I, I'll get really steamed up about it and annoyed. But then 
you know, I've been living with it. I think we've all been living with it for so long. And it, it's just been progressively getting crazier and crazier, worse and worse, it seems. Yes. So, you know, I remember many years ago thinking, oh, it, it can't get any worse than this. But now I'm, I'm getting more philosophical about it. It seems like, oh, inevitably, it is just going to get worse and worse, and at least in some ways. You know, as I came out of an appointment yesterday here in Taos, there was already kind of a hazy horizon. But when I came out into the parking lot, the haze had descended so that there wasn't, there was less than a mile of visibility. And you could, it was like smelling standing next to a campfire. And when I got home, actually, I couldn't even see the end of my road, which is only, you know, a mile, mile and a half. And I'm already a mile out. I couldn't see to the end of the road a half mile further. And I, I parked into my garage and I just started weeping. And I was thinking, wow, it really just keeps getting crazier. Then last night, these hurricane force winds brought in a new front to cool things down a little, thank heavens, and maybe bring some moisture. And I was thinking, this is just wild. Of course, we're living kind of on the front edge of the climate thing, you know, seeing those plumes. I've sent you pictures, that sort of stuff. And it's really amazing because it only takes a look over your shoulder to be reminded, you know, wildlife is disappearing. There's, you know, of course, animals, you know, plants, all this sort of thing, all the trees. And, you know, right now, New Mexico has had wildfires that has consumed um, we're heading towards 800,000 acres, which is almost double the size of Los Angeles. And that is approaching the annual average for the whole West. The annual yearly average in the last 10 years has been about a million acres. Of course, it fluctuates every year. We're starting to approach that amount. And I think it's probably going to be pretty easy that we'll get that just in New Mexico alone. And we haven't even hit the 1st of July. Yeah, I actually wanted to start off our conversation by asking you about that and how you're doing with it and describe where you are in relation to the fire that's the wildfire that's that's really just below you. It's last I saw it was it was about 15 miles south of where you are. That's correct, 1520, but Tonio since it was last Thursday, just a week ago, there was a lightning strike directly to the west of us. And so that would be about, I don't know, 30, 40 miles directly to the west of us called the Midnight Fire. So now we have it on two sides. And particularly with the Midnight Fire, if we do have straight westerly winds, that smoke's coming directly to Taos. So the interesting thing was the smoke that we saw yesterday was not from the Midnight Fire. It was from the Hermit's Peak Calf Creek Fire, the one that you mentioned, the one to the south of us, and it was heading north. And that's what came and hovered over the town for a couple hours. And then the afternoon winds picked up and blew it all out again. So, you know, it's wild. I think the image that sticks with me the most that I saw online was one of the firefighters, and this was in the, the Hermit's Peak Calf Creek Fire, he had in his arms a calf elk. And of course, they were just guessing. That elk had been covered in ash, but its parents basically were trying to outrun the fire and, and left the calf, you know, to its own devices, figuring that, you know, they, it was just a survival mode. And the calf survived. The fire went over it or around it, who knows, 
And there it was. And the firefighter was taking the calf to an animal rescue place so that it could go ahead and have its own life. But I thought, wow, this is really what it's come to. So it seems like for the last month that Hermit's Peak fire has not really moved much further north. Is it contained or is there some kind of natural barrier? You know, there's a ridge. And this morning I looked at 72% containment. But the problem is when these afternoon winds kick up and it can gust up to 50 miles an hour, there's not a whole lot you can do, even if you have, you know, a great, you know, like a bulldozed fire line that could be, you know, 20 yards wide, something like that. It's just that with winds that are that, that ferocious, they'll carry the embers to wherever they want. And it is so dry. I mean, Tonio, imagine this. At my own house, and I have xeric landscaping, I am watering now twice what I used to in the past just to keep things alive. That's crazy. It is really crazy. And of course, I know you're supposed to be at the other end of this, in which the Northeast is supposed to be getting, in theory, wetter as we're getting drier. Is that the case for you? No. Oh, really? That's fascinating. I'd say we've had periods of relative drought for our climate, nothing compared to what happens out West. Out West has been crazy for the last decade, I'd say. Like, I've been, it's a 20 year drought. Because I've been following, like in California, where they've had some massive droughts and then they have these massive downpours. Yeah. All of which are way out of proportion with seasonal norms or or any kind of uh, weather pattern norms. So they've had like more rain than they've ever had. And and at the same time, they're going through these incredible droughts, which are playing havoc on everything out there because everything is irrigated in California pretty much. Yes, yes. And you may have seen the recent photos from Yellowstone. Uh, You know, half of the park is closed now because of rains and floods up there that have actually taken out some roads and uh, there were even people, visitors who were stranded about a week ago because there was physically no way to get out of there until they came up with an alternate route. So, <laughs> on that cheery note. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, and I know we, we have talked about, you know, doing, as you mentioned, a wild poetry show. And I think, you know, I've been kind of, you know, in, in my own way with my own radio show, Tonio, tried to address these things. Although, you know, I this is just, and I think you you try and do the same thing in your own way with your show, not to get stuck on the literal, you know, that, that kind of everyday, that two-dimensional thing that is, you know, sort of an obsession with our culture, but to find other perspectives. And not necessarily, I'm not really, at least in my case, you know, trying to shoot for hope or anything like that. You know, I had one show that was, how does one work their way through despair, for instance? So here, for instance, I have, here's a Robert Bly poem that I read a little while ago, and it's called Keeping Our Small Boat Afloat. And here's the poem. So many blessings have been given to us during the first distribution of light that we are admired in a thousand galaxies for our grief. Don't expect us to appreciate creation or to avoid mistakes. 
Each of us is a latecomer to the earth, picking up wood for the fire. Every night, another beam of light slips out from the oyster's closed eye. So don't give up hope that the door of mercy may still be open. Seth and Shem, tell me, are you still grieving over the spark of light that descended with no defender near into the Egypt of Mary's womb? It's hard to grasp how much generosity is involved in letting us go on breathing when we contribute nothing valuable but our grief. Each of us deserves to be forgiven, if only for our persistence in keeping our small boat afloat when so many have gone down in the storm. So there, you know, he's not really talking about hope so much, but that maybe we deserve, and I'm not sure who he might even be referring to, whether it's the divine, whether it's, you know, the, the communal out there, whatever that might be, that we all deserve a certain amount of forgiveness just for our persistence and keeping going. Because, you know, as we look around, so many have passed. I mean, when you think about it, Tonio, when you way back, and this is with your early travels and when you had exited college and all that, um, how many of those people are still alive that you knew then? Well, if I know a few who've died, but most of the others I'm not aware of. Yeah, because um, I know it's same here that I haven't kept in touch, so I don't know one way or the other, but there's been a fair amount. I mean, not so much in my family, but with friends, suicides, and even in town, you know, even lately, like there was a real heartbreaker of a story when I was swimming laps a number of months ago, there was a three-year-old that a friend was teaching how to swim and he had kind of cautioned, you know, the parents like, this is pretty early for learning how to swim. Anyhow, this kid was a light. He was just a fish in the water. And then I hear through yet another friend in town who said, oh, he had heard about a three-year-old who, when he was visiting, his parents were looking at a new property to buy. The kid fell into a septic tank and drowned. And the mother had had a dream about the child drowning. And, you know, I didn't know this kid. You know, all I knew was that I was next to him for a number of weeks when I was swimming laps. And he was just so precious. And I was thinking of the pain that those parents were going through. And, you know, these losses that happen, you know, and I don't know if you get to hear that in your community as much as, you know, I just go out there and this town is small enough that if you don't know the person who has died, you know the person who does know the person who died. And it seems to happen on a pretty regular basis, kind of a rough atmosphere out here, you know, people committing suicide, that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's rough now. And I think for some people, in fact, I know it was just a swimmer only just a couple of days ago. She was telling me a story about someone she knew casually. And this woman did try and take her life. And in the most peculiar way, she drove her car and then, then abruptly cut in front of a truck in order to commit suicide. And it didn't work, thank God. Uh, but I was thinking, wow, so many people are on the edge right now. Have you been noticing that at all? Not at all. I haven't noticed anything like that here. But then again, I'm kind of a hermit in the woods. So, <laughs> right. I'm, so I'm really out of the loop, but yeah. I'm not hearing anything like that around here. Maybe it's because you're. it's a much more saner part of the world. I, You know that 
you all, of course, Taos has its own self-sufficiency, but I know when I lived in Vermont, that was part of the package, you know, your self-sufficiency of having your own garden of, you know, you could probably do fine without going to the post office for weeks and still have your time completely occupied. Yeah, I could do without going to the post office, but food, no. <laughs> I cannot survive on my puny little garden, especially this time of year. There's there's nothing to eat out of my garden yet or hardly anything. And is it doing well, though? Are you getting enough moisture? Oh, yeah. Well, that's good. That's something. Oh, yeah. I have nothing to complain about here. I mean, compared to what's going on in the rest of the world, we're in paradise. <laughs> Literally. I mean... Yeah. This is like paradise by comparison. I mean, today it's pretty windy. I was out looking at my garden and pruning some things and doing some weeding. And the wind was giving my plants quite a time out there. But that's part of nature. And I was reflecting on how, you know, in other parts of the country, like in the South and Midwest, they get hurricanes and tornadoes that that completely destroy everything when they come through, not just bending over trees or ripping up plants, but doing real damage. So, so far, life here is pretty, uh, pretty easy and lush and in relative balance and harmony, relatively speaking, at least compared to the rest of the crazy, mad world. Well, and I'm glad to hear that there are places like that, Tonio. And as I've mentioned earlier, I've never lived in a place to be so close to the edge of this climate catastrophe that's taking place. So like I said, all it is is a visual check-in to the horizon to see where it is at that moment. And knowing that, you know, something could change very quickly, you know, including, you know, just the wind direction. And all of a sudden, the quality of our breathing air has been compromised. So then the hard reality of how much water is going to be available, because I think slowly but surely, you know, the, the kind of wasting that we do as human beings. I mean, I saw out in L.A., they have now just imposed a new restriction. Eight minutes, I think it's eight minutes every, like um, twice a week is all that's now allowed for a lawn. Of course, here, we wouldn't even dream of wasting water that way, that water is used for plants and then ideally for growing your own food to keep your life going. Yeah, Southern California, it's pretty outrageous how much water they, they waste on ornamental lawns. It's yeah. it's it's insane. It's been going on for decades and people have been making a big thing about it. But yeah. apparently there's a sufficient critical mass that refuses to give it up and has the power to influence politicians. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it sounds like things are going pretty well for you. And do you get any sort of hints of some of this craziness? Like you were mentioning how difficult it's been to schedule people lately. Have things just been so upended that you couldn't really just say, well, let's just plan on something in three weeks? Is that even possible anymore? I actually don't have any idea why it's been hard to get scheduling done. Usually, the arrangements are made through publicists, and apparently they have been having trouble getting in touch with their authors, some of them. Oh, really? And, and um, I have no idea what's going on. I'm just being, you know, 
as patient as I can and grateful for what I get. Yeah, yeah, and so, yeah. And so far, I'm doing okay. I don't have any gaps yet, but uh, that's life. Yeah. And I just, I actually just canceled on one because uh -huh. the subject didn't grab me. And let's just say in the last six months, what books in particular have lit you up? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there have been several, but there's one that I'm near the end of right now that is exceptional. It is truly exceptional. I think it is the peak of all of them in terms of relating to the world around us and worldview. And I have some segments from it because you had mentioned yeah. that I, I should bring some prose to offset your poetry. So I have a few pieces from there, but I also wanted to share a, a quick line because you had mentioned something, you know, in relation to uh, the Robert Bly poem. And there was a line that in, in that poem that stuck out that all we have to offer is grief. Yes. How we're admired in a thousand galaxies for our grief. An interesting line. And, you know, there's something kind of mystical, too, how he talks about being admired in a thousand galaxies. How does he know that? Um, but also, you know, he gives a context, you know, a historical context in the sense. And again, this is very poetic during the first distribution of light. So he's really going quite far back in time and that it was our grief that seemed to be the most prominent aspect of us as a species from this other galaxy view. So go ahead with what this referred to um, as far as what you wanted to read. Well, here's, here's a, a simple line, and I'm not sure which book it came out of. Hope is the certainty that what we're doing, regardless of outcome, is the right thing to do. Hmm. And tell me, why was it that that particular line struck you? I think hope is something that we're all wrestling with on some level, whether we are in need of a sense of hope or whether we're railing against false hope yeah. or whether we're falling somewhere in between, you know, in some deep chasm in between. Yeah. So what struck me is that regardless of the circumstances and also regardless of the likelihood of a good outcome, that for some of us, the only thing we can really hold on to in terms of our own humanity is to do what we feel is most right to be doing, regardless whether there'll be any benefit or, you know, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow kind of notion. And I think you're making a beautiful discernment in here, you know, that there's, of course, that, that kind of hope that might come with someone who's being so outwardly altruistic and saying, you know, I'm going to work for this nonprofit, you know, that kind of thing. And you know, I'm, I'm a little leery of those that feel like, you know, they're going out with their hope to change the world, because I'm not entirely sure that the world needs to be changed in certain respects. But then there's this other thing that you were really hinting at, which was, you know, hope as something that keeps us afloat, in a sense. But if we're working with the gifts that we have to offer, and it's like, well, but this is what I do, that there's something quite satisfying in that. I mean, how long have you been doing your radio show, for instance? This iteration, 
probably about 10, 11 years. But it made me think back connecting with Robert Bly's poem, you know, doing, <laughs> using the expression of, you know, doing what floats my boat. Yeah. You know, following the path that my heart is in. Yes. Regardless of where it leads me. Because just following that path in alignment with my own heart is reward enough. Yeah, that's beautiful. You know, there's, and this is right in the same terrain, Tonio, there's a, a poem here from Jane Hirschfield, and the name of the poem is Counting This New Year's Morning, What Powers Yet Remain to Me? And here's the poem. The world asks, as it asks daily, and what can you make, can you do to change my deep, broken, fractured? I count this first day of another year, what remains? I have a mountain, a kitchen, two hands, can admire with two eyes the mountain, actual, recalcitrant, shuffling its pebbles, sheltering foxes and beetles, can make black-eyed peas and collards, can make, from last year's late ripening persimmons, a pudding, can climb a stepladder, change the bulb in a track light. For four years, I woke each day, first to the mountain, then to the question. The feet of the new sufferings followed the feet of the old, and still they surprised. I brought salt, brought oil to the question, brought sweet tea, brought postcards and stamps. For four years, each day, something. Stone did not become apple. War did not become peace. Yet joy still stays joy. Sequence stays sequence. Words still bespangle, bewilder. Today, I woke without an answer. The day answers, unpockets a thought from a friend, and here's, it's like a quote, don't despair of this falling world, not yet. Didn't it give you the asking? And I think that asking, what she's mentioned at the end, is the very thing that you mentioned, is, you know, it's asking us, so what do you have to offer? You know, it could be our gifts, it could be our love, it could be our caring, our patience, our listening. It could be any of those things, depending on whatever the moment calls of us. It's the offering of our heart, wherever our heart happens to be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's about authenticity, who yes. we really are in this moment. Yes. Whatever it is, whether it's an experience of joy or it's an experience of despair or rage or whatever's arising out of that experience. Uh -huh. That's what we that's what we have to offer in this moment. And if we're true to that, perhaps it'll find its place in the uh, in this great uh, scheme of the universe. Yeah. And, you know, I know, for instance, you know, because I've had circumstances lately of, of some rage, and, and then it gives me this interesting opportunity, once I can step away from it far enough, to figure out how do I transform that more into love, or where did that rage originate somewhere in my past so I get to forgive it and heal it, you know, that kind of thing, that it all, everything turns into an opportunity from that perspective. Yeah. How can I best work with this? Yes, exactly. So even during your interviews, because it, I've noticed you're such a lovely patient interviewer and you can ask a question and your patients, 
you know, certain people will just go. And I think some people, they should just go because they get a certain amount of momentum. But are there times where you feel challenged in your interviews as far as somebody wanting to veer a different direction from necessarily where you might wanted to have gone? I wouldn't say direction. Every once in a blue moon, I'll have someone who will literally talk for 20 minutes or half an hour and they won't pause. And it's not that I want to get in a word edgewise, but I start to feel disconnected from them Yeah, in a way. It's like they're, they become kind of like a, a runaway train. Yeah, and, they're so, and, soapbox. <laughs> and that's when I lose the joy of it when I don't feel the connection. Yes. But one thing I wanted to say in relation to that last poem, which was wonderful, is that poetry has this magical way of expressing the complexity of human experience and all of the qualities of our experience in such seemingly simple terms with an economy of words which is very difficult to find in any prose. Prose, generally you have to read like an entire essay or an entire book to get what the author is really wanting to say. Whereas a good poem, you know, maybe half a page, a page or two pages at most, and wow, you've been delivered a load of gold. Oh, you're absolutely right. You know, there's the poet, Marie Howe, she said this lovely thing once where she said, poems are like casting spells. But I also think good prose can do that, but you're quite right. They tend to be, the, it's just a slightly different direction of how to do it. Like, I'll give you an example of a really compressed poem. And this is from Franz Wright, and it's called, Did This Ever Happen to You? A marble-colored cloud engulfed the sun and stalled. A skinny squirrel limped toward me as I crossed the empty park and froze. The last, or next to last, leaf, fall leaf fell, but before it touched the earth, with shocking clarity, I heard my mother's voice pronounce my name. And in an instant, I passed beyond sorrow and terror and was carried up into the imageless, bright darkness I came from and am. Nobody's stronger than forgiveness. So isn't that gorgeous? He's taking this very almost mundane situation of hanging out in a park. He sees a squirrel and then boom, out of nowhere, his mother's voice, you know, says his name. And then as he says, in, in an instant, I passed beyond sorrow and terror and was carried up into the imageless, bright darkness I came from and am. And then that turn, you know, when he says, nobody's stronger than forgiveness. And I think this is the thing that he was asking us as a reader. Have you ever had that moment where who knows what little memory might have happened or there's a sensation or happened and all of a sudden there is this, like this feeling of redemption, like, it's going to be okay, no matter how crazy it is with all the other elements of my life. So it's, it's like life itself forgives us and returns us back to who we are. Yes. 
Isn't that lovely? And I just, and I love, <laughs> there's a certainty there when he says, nobody's stronger than forgiveness. That right. forgiveness is one of those pieces of that larger, that larger umbrella, you know, called love that, you know, it just feels so good. Yeah, it's the forgiveness and love of the universe, just embracing us regardless of whatever kind of trip we went off on. Yes. For, for however long or, you know, whatever distraction, the universe brought us back in this magical way, brought us back to ourselves in this magical way. And from our perspective, it could be perceived as an act of loving forgiveness. And and I don't know, tell me if this is your experience, Tonio. I've been feeling... And I don't know, you know, this may be just my own stuff that I still need to clean up from the past. But I've been feeling a certain cynicism about humanity and, <laughs> you know, like and what we've been doing to the planet and the wildlife and the air and everything. And then the, uh, comes, you know, a poem like this, that the even the concept that we can be forgiven for just being human. There's some part of me that wants to weep at just the thought of that, of like, you mean there's even a part of me that's lovable somehow here. And don't we all struggle with that sometimes? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, this forgiveness thing. Let me see. I, I might even have some other poems in that in that direction. But no, I want to hear more from what, what you've been looking up. Well, you know, reflecting on forgiveness, I had a, a kind of an insight a couple of nights ago or mornings ago and I wrote it down. It's funny how these things don't sound like much after the fact, but uh, in a recent show, I had mentioned in response to something my guest had said that in the world, this, this kind of dynamic tension between chaos and control. And my guest said, it seems that way from our, our smaller inside perspective, but when you zoom out far enough, is an order to everything. And that made me think of our current world, which seems so insane and out of control. But of course, we're just seeing that in that way from inside of our own small, separate perspectives. Mm -hmm. And if we're able to zoom far enough out, there's a, a greater perspective of order to everything that transcends all of our small, little individual perspectives that are filtered through our own personal and cultural worldviews of what's right and wrong and what's good and bad. And I went on and on from there, but it made me reflect back on Ho'oponopono and asking forgiveness for those smaller perspectives that arise and get in the way of being able to see and experience and trust in the greater wholeness of all that is that I'm a part of instead of, you know, getting caught up in my smaller, separate perspective. You know, it's beautiful that you're using Ho'oponopono in that way. And you're really referring to a pretty big dilemma on the planet. You know, we've been so ingrained with this idea of, of duality and it has to be either or, you know, good or bad, you know, a different political party from the other, that kind of thing. And when we get to whether you want to call it the cosmic or the more of the mystical view, which gets us to step out of that and say, like, so it was a Linda Hogan book I'd read years ago, and I never realized the concept that the amount, the volume of water 
that is on and around the planet always remains the same. It just tends to migrate to certain places, you know, during certain times for whatever event. And, it, and I never understood that large perspective because I was still in that more of a child perspective of, oh, you know, we're in a drought. The water must be disappearing or evaporating or something like that. And then when I started thinking of that and getting metaphorical about it, of like, oh, so this is just kind of a temporary thing right here. Although I'd say right now in the Southwest, after 20 years of drought and seeing it getting worse, that we may, in fact, I'd say some people out here would say we have already crossed over the edge, the precipice, when it comes to climate disaster. And there's absolutely no way going back. Even if we all stopped all our cars or are flying in airplanes, everything all at once today, it's already in motion. But I'm still getting back to how you are using Ho'oponopono to get to the mystical. And I think that's fantastic. In fact, I can't even think of a more efficient, better tool in something that you can carry literally around your pocket anytime, all the time, to help you out to get through stuff. Especially if you don't even have a pocket. (laughs) (laughs) And do you know that old Chinese saying, which was, uh, there was a man who kept complaining because uh, he had no shoes until he met a man who didn't have any feet? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Right. And that reminds me of that old Monty Python routine. I think it's called the four Yorkshiremen or something where. You thought you had it bad. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) We grew up under a lake and we had to clean that lake every morning before we walked to school. Yes, I know exactly. It's, It's great. And it is sometimes that comparison to realize that. You know, I do think there are those people that really are struggling on the planet. You know, I'm thinking of people that, like in Africa, that can't even get access to food, you know, that kind of thing. And, of course, they're already in a drought-stricken, war-torn area, that kind of thing. You know, in our country, there are people struggling here, but we live pretty blessed lives here in, in this particular country. As you mentioned, you're hanging out in paradise. Yep. I'm incredibly blessed. Yeah. Incredibly blessed. I mean, I I paid my dues in life, but uh, still, the dues I've paid are nothing compared to what many people on the planet have paid and continue to pay. Well, but on the other hand, Tonya, I know enough of your story and whatever craziness. You know, these are such hard things to gauge because... You may not have, for instance, suffered, say, homelessness or, you know, food, poverty, things like that. But when you start getting into those psychological and emotional areas, very difficult to sort of compare as far as, so how intense was that? And would that be the equivalent, for instance, of somebody growing up, a person of color who is facing racism every day on the streets, you know, that kind of thing? I have no idea about things like that, I can still appreciate, have enough imagination to say, wow, I don't think I, you know, that would be too tough for me, that kind of thing. But then again, where is it? There's, I do have a poem which talks about that very idea that even when we don't think we have enough, it's still, there's always still enough there that we still carry on somehow, even when we think we've been taken to the edge. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that reminds me, you had asked me if there was a book that I had read that was lighting me up. And yeah, I want to plug this book because it is just fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. I mean, I can't say enough about it. It's titled Restoring the Kinship Worldview. The authors are Four Arrows and Darsha Narvez, who are two First Nation people, and they have chosen 28 very short pieces of writing from different First Nations people, like a page to maybe two pages long, and then they do a commentary back and forth between them about the 28 precepts of the indigenous worldview and is absolutely fabulous. And it actually reminds me of, of your curriculum of the soul, because in your curriculum of the soul, weren't there like 43 essays on what could be called the precepts of the soul or precepts of the curriculum of the soul in a way? Yeah, there's like 43, 44 chapters. You're quite right. So can you give me an example of one of these or a couple of these precepts that you're reading about in this book? Yes, I have a few of them at the ready. But the first thing I wanted to share was something from the book that I think relates to what you were about to find a poem to read about. And this is about a lullaby that mothers sang to their infants and children every night during the infamous Trail of Tears. And at the time, while people were dropping dead under the awful conditions and starvation, that every night, you know, as they're walking hundreds of miles, you know, from their own land into who knows what and who knows where, every night, the mothers would sing this lullaby to their infants and children, which was essentially singing of the sun and the clouds in the sky and the colors of the flowers and the songs of the birds and all of the wonders and beauty of the natural world. And what was their commentary like in relation to that particular story? That even in the face of despair, that you can still create, you can still honor the beauty of the world. It's reminiscent of, you know, Viktor Frankl and the way he responded to being in the concentration camp, you know, during World War II, that yeah. he, he refused to allow the inhumanity of the guards and the Nazis and the circumstances, the starvation and the death and horrors going on around him. He refused to allow that to take away his humanity. Mm. And this is very similar, that these mothers were doing everything to maintain and support the humanity of their children, of themselves and their children, in this act of recreating. It's sort of, it's reminiscent of the song lines of the Australian Aborigines who sing the world into existence. Yes, yes, during the dream time. Yeah. Well, bringing the dream time into into this world, they don't have the same separation that we see in the world. They literally bring the dream time into this world by singing about, you know, the land as they're traveling 
and reconnecting like the journeys of their ancestors and the old songs to what they're experiencing in the present moment so that there's no separation. So in this, um, it's similar, except that this is being done in the face of great despair and tribulation. You know, something beautiful, remember that Marie Halp quote I was telling you about how poems cast a spell? It seems that there's this incredible intelligence with the mothers singing these lullabies that they knew that if they could infuse a memory of the natural world, a certain magic could possibly take place. And this would be on, on almost an unconscious level in our psyches because that's where we came from. And if we can reconnect to that, we know somehow it'll be okay. You know, even if you're going to a strange land, even if whatever has been taken away from you, that there's still an essential part of us that can't be stripped away. Exactly. Preserving at least a spark of humanity. Yeah. Regardless of the outcome. Yeah. So if we're going to die, if all else is going to fail, at least we go out with our humanity. Yes, yes. And I think, you know, and, and I know I, I certainly had enough quotes in the curriculum, but this book is much closer to that indigenous, you know, perspective. Like when I've been reading John O'Donohue's Anamkata, he keeps talking about Celtic spirituality. And there was a real subtlety that went with that. But these older cultures understood these you know, sort of like these other layers that exist above, below, and around us and knew how to access those other layers so we didn't, like in our particular culture, we're really kind of stuck on this one dualistic, you know, level and hence a lot of problems because we've lost, I mean, those older cultures had this other imagination that I think is astonishing. Which was rooted in the natural world. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Which they were not separate from. They, right. they saw their place as an integral part of the natural world. And here's one of the precepts. I'll read it. It's titled Centrality of Gratitude by Audrey Shenandoah. And she is a member of the Onondaga Nation, which was part of the Iroquois Federation. Yes down in New York State and, and beyond. And she's writing from first-person perspective. I would first give thanks for another day of life here on this earth. It's another day extended that we may enjoy the compassionate goodness of our creator. Among my people, we would not come together in conference without first offering words of acknowledgement, respect, and thanksgiving for our fellow human beings. Now our words we direct to our mother earth who supports all life. We look to the shortest grasses close to the bosom of our mother earth. As we put our minds together as one mind, we include all plant life, the woodlands, all the waters of the earth, the fishes, the animal life, the bird life and the four winds. As one mind, our acknowledgement, respect, and thanksgiving move upward to the sky world, the grandmother moon, who has direct relationship to the females 
of the species of all living things, the sun and the stars and our spiritual beings of the sky world, we will carry on the original instructions of this great cycle of life. With one mind, we address our acknowledgement, respect, and gratefulness to all the sacred cycle of life. We, as humans, must remember to be humble and acknowledge the gifts we use so freely in our lives. Mm. You know, Tonio, it's, it's almost like this is a detailed description of love, and it's just gorgeous. And I love the way they come together as one mind. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty mystical idea that I think for them, this was, you know, like this was just part of everyday consciousness. For us, it's far too shattered and fractured to even consider that possibility as a culture. We're way too individualistic and we're always looking out for what's in it for me. Whereas in their culture, they see themselves as being completely interconnected and interdependent so that the most efficient way to live their lives in their societies and when they need to accomplish something or to come together in conference, they need to do it by coming together as one mind with one will or in some unified way, honoring each other as part of the whole. Yes. And, you know, there's something quite beautiful about this. And, you know, we're, we're like sort of halfway across the river in relation to understanding this beautiful thing that you just read, which is that, and I finally came up with the succinct words for this a few weeks ago, identity is what we are, not who we are. And, you know, that we keep getting stuck on the who we are place and not understanding the larger thing that the quote just represented of getting to the one mind idea that, yes, you know, it's like they even understood there are different tribes, you know, that there are different species and all this sort of thing. But there's a certain point where it does all come back together, that it doesn't stay separate. Because life itself is not separate. Right. The creation itself is not separate. Yes. And here's another much shorter segment that came out of the book. And it's about matrilineal gift economy. A mother gives unilaterally to her baby. Mother Earth gives all of us life and sustains us unilaterally. From that perspective, our lives could be a continual act of giving, whether unilaterally or giving back not out of a sense of obligation or debt, but out of an embodied sense of gratitude and joy and appreciation and love generated by all that we've received and continue to receive. Yeah. Yeah, that's so beautiful because it's really, the whole cycle of life is right there. And yeah. how do we keep that whole thing happening? And, you know, I still, you know, like I was going to ask you, Tonio, with the number of years that you've been on the planet, it doesn't matter at this point because I know that you're, you know, you're past 40 for sure. Um, but, and I'm just kidding here. But do you, because I asked this of a friend of mine, this very same question a number of years ago, do you find that it's just getting easier and easier 
as you sort these things out, particularly inside of yourself, so that however your life is navigated now, that yes, there's certain things that are still beyond our control, but that you don't wake up in a terror that like, for instance, I might have done when I was in my 20s, that kind of thing. Has it been getting easier? Yeah, and I think we actually talked about this, you know, maybe a year or two ago, but absolutely, absolutely. And going back to that, that last thing that I read, can you imagine what this world would be like if the dominant worldview and the way we, we related to each other and the world around us was based on that? You know, if, if I'm not mistaken, Antonio, but correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I may have my, my facts wrong here, but if I'm not mistaken, that the Declaration of Independence for the United States was taken from the Iroquois nation that revered, last word was always with the grandmothers. So in, in their case, like in the Iroquois nation, that any major decisions, their final, the Supreme Court in the Iroquois nation were the grandmothers. So there was this feminine that you had mentioned in that quote. The feminine was the overriding sort of arbiter rather than the masculine. And I think that the feminine, there's something, I don't know if this is true again or not, but I think the feminine, particularly because the feminine, you know, women are the ones that are giving birth to children, that for them, peace is really the essence of life. It's not about conflict. It's not about struggling and all that other kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that that's exactly what men are. I think men are quite generative and that's really more the purest thing. But women have, you know, this whole other thing of, you know, their connection with their emotional bodies, their connection with the planet around them. But knowing that ultimately the survival of that child, it has to be predicated on a certain kind of peace for this life to continue on. And also it's the grandmothers, the council of grandmothers that choose the chief, the male yeah. chief yeah. of each yeah. tribe. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, it creates a beautiful, harmonious balance of male and female. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. So here's a poem for you. This is, he's not alive anymore. His name Hayden Carruth and this is not exactly related to what we're talking about, but I think you can, you can feel a softening. And this is, the name of the poem is Testament. So often it has been displayed to us, the hourglass with its grains of sand drifting down, not as an object in our world, but as a sign, a symbol, our lives drifting down grain by grain, sifting away. I'm sure everyone must see this emblem somewhere in the mind. Yet not only our lives drift down, the stuff of ego with which we began, the mass in the upper chamber filters away as love accumulates below. Now <laughs> I am almost entirely love. I've been to the banker, the broker, those strange people to talk about unit trusts, annuities, CDs, IRAs, trying to leave you whatever I can after I die. I've made my will, written you a long letter of instructions. I think about this continually. What will you do? How will you live? You can't go back to cocktail waitressing in the casino and your poetry? 
It'll bring you at best a pittance in our civilization, a widow's might as mine has for 45 years, which is why I leave you so little. Brokers, unit trusts, I'm no financier doing the world's great business, and the sands in the upper glass grow few. Can I leave you the veil of 10,000 trilliums where we buried our good cat Pokey across the lane to the quarry? Maybe the tulips I planted under the lilac tree or our red-bellied woodpeckers who have given us so much pleasure and the rabbits and the deer and kisses and love makings, all our embracings. I know millions of these will be still unspent when the last grain of sand falls with its whisper. It's inconsequence on the mountain of my love below. That's such an amazingly beautiful way of saying the same thing that you asked me about just before, about whether it gets easier as I get older. Yeah. Because that's, that's what we gain. And then his desire to, to be able to pass that on to the next generation. But of course, the next generation has to go through the same process that he went through and that we all go through one grain of sand at a time. <laughs> yeah. And I do think it also refers back to the grandmothers that we we're mentioning. There's something, you know, and I, and I don't know, maybe I'm making too much of this, but the fact that a woman has the ability to create another life, even of course, with the, with the man's help, but to create another life, there's such an inherent bond and love between the mother and that child that there's no question for the most part, I think I'm sure there's exceptions out there for people that are traumatized or damaged somehow, but between the mother and the child, as far as what's important in terms of that love and in terms of the survival of that child. So that it's, it's like, it's in the DNA. And that's why, you know, it's so fascinating when you think about, for instance, like mass shootings in America, very, very rarely, do we ever have a woman doing this kind of thing compared to an immature teenager or young male whose brain has yet to be fully developed? We're a grumpy old man. Yes, yes, exactly. So very interesting. I'm so glad that it's getting better. So have you finished this book? I have three precepts to go. And they're just amazingly wise and articulate and what they're sharing is just sublime it's just what we i'm hesitant to to use the word desperately but desperately thirsting for and hungering for you know from our our impoverished worldview based culture that we are immersed in and steeped in and living in and surrounded by and being bombarded by the news of, by, and, and all of that. And yet there is another way of seeing everything, another way of experiencing everything. And even if the outcome isn't in our favor, there is a wondrous experience of, of our humanity that we can still enjoy, even if all else fails. And I wondered, you know, because the authors that you're describing, that, and I think there have always been people that have said wonderful things, and who knows, maybe these two 
are, you know, the prophets of our time. The question I have for you is, what do you think it would take for, I mean, because it seems to me we have ample, ample evidence of catastrophe. You know, the whole paradigm is collapsing around us. What do you think it would take for more people to listen to say, oh, we need to be paying attention to something different here? Well, I think that we need to spend more time immersed in the unknown, in the great mystery of things, and not be convinced by computer models or the prognostications of scientists and analysts and experts in all these fields who get, you know, front center stage on the soapbox on all of these topics, that everything that they're saying and prognosticating about is based upon the past. And there's really no way to accurately predict the future. I was reflecting on this earlier, how every time anyone tries to predict the future, invariably they are wrong about <laughs> almost everything. And depending on how far out they try to predict, the more and more wrong they are. So there's this, I don't really know how to quite put it in words. There's a kind of magic or virtually unlimited realm of possibility that exists, you know, in the quantum world where reality hasn't been collapsed into a discrete, finite state. We can change our outlook on the world. We can change our feeling about the world. We can change our feeling about ourselves in the world. And if we can bring more humanity and more love into our own direct experience, regardless of what's going on around us, I think that helps to feed a whole nother range of possibilities and probabilities for our future that we can only begin to imagine from our place here and now. Yeah, yeah, I, I quite agree with you. And in, in fact, I have a, actually, I, I do have, I just pulled up a Marie Howe poem. I think it so speaks to this very thing you're talking about. And actually this very moment we're living in. The name of the poem is What the Silence Said. Here's the poem. Do you still believe in borders now? Birds soar over your maps and walls and always have. You might have watched how the smoke from your own fires traveled on wind. You couldn't see wafting over the valley and up and over the hills and over the next valley and the next hill. Did you not hear the animals howl and sing or hear the silence of the animals no longer singing? Now you know what it is to be afraid. You think this is a dream? It is not a dream. You think this is a theoretical question? What do you love more than what you imagine is your singular life? The water grows clear, the swans settle and float there. Are you willing to take your place in the forest again, to become loam and bark, to be a leaf falling from a great height, to be the worm who eats the leaf and the bird who eats the worm? Look at the sky. Are you willing to be the sky again? You think the lesson is too hard for you. You want the time out to end. You want to go to the movies as before, to sit and eat with your friends. It can end now, but not in the way you imagine. 
You know the mind has been talking to you for so long. The mind that can explain everything, don't listen. You were once a citizen of a country called I Don't Know. Remember the burning boat that brought you there? Climb in. I love the way that ends. Isn't that great? Because I'm thinking of, you know, like who remembers, of course, you know, when we were born. But of course, when we were born, you know, we went sort of changed consciousness. Uh, you know, the, the people talk about, in fact, there's that great Mark Twain quote. I have in a curriculum somewhere. It's about death where he says, you know, I was dead for thousands of years before I was born. It did not suffer the least bit inconvenience. Yeah. So, you know, when we're crossing over from the other side and in our mother's womb and we're coming out, that we really are in that country called I don't know. And that, you know, when I see, you know, like I have some young friends, Jocelyn has a grandson, you know, who's now only maybe a year and a half. The curiosity is unbounded. And when I'm around that kind of energy, it is so thrilling to me because the world is new all of the time. Yep. And one of the greatest crimes we do to ourselves and each other is to rob ourselves of the unknown by trying to impose the past upon it. Yeah. Well, I was funny because I was looking at something I think is on my computer. They're asking me to do an update. And sometimes I get a little weary of those, Tonio, because if I do an update, then my printer no longer works or something like that. But I, was, but I was thinking of that idea, you know, and this goes back to that whole thought of noetic balancing, like when we worked with each other doing that at one time, like, so how do we update our own belief systems so that to get to the very place you were just mentioning, so that it isn't just me regurgitating like, no, I don't go dancing or no, I don't see films like that or you know that kind of thing. And how do we keep ourselves open so that the world of possibilities is always available? Well, one of the simplest ways I know is using Ho'oponopono. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's great. You know, and, and I know I mentioned to you in a previous email, there's this wonderful film which will be released on DVD in a few weeks, which is called Everything Everywhere All at Once. And there's this beautiful moment in the film where the, the essence of the story is that there's an everyday woman, she and her husband have a Chinese laundry and everything's kind of falling apart in her life. And then she realizes that there are these multiverses that one can actually jump into and bring the expertise from that other universe, you know, like the Kung Fu universe or who knows whatever. But there's a moment in the film where her husband, and this time he's not her actual husband, but this character from the multiverse. And he says, you know, I've seen all the Evelyns in all of the universes, and you are the only one who doesn't know how to do anything well. And then he follows up and says, because of that, you are the one Evelyn who is capable of doing everything great. So there's this real beauty that this whole film brought about, which was that all the possibilities are there for us and right at our fingertips all of the time if we're willing to take that jump. And start from a place of humility. Yes. 
Yes, or even, you know, could be a, a thing of necessity. And the thing that's so gorgeous with this film, and I'm not going to do any spoilers, but, you know, there's a point where, you know, there there's kind of this cartoon violence thing, people attacking her and all this kind of stuff, because she's trying to stop the, the, the big evil out there in the universe. Anyhow, she confronts this moment where all these attackers are ready to go after her, and she's like, so is she just going to do the attack thing, because she has all the ability, or is she going to figure out a way to do it with love? And she does. And it's just absolutely, I mean, I was so touched. And it's thrilling at the same time. And I'm like, so she chooses love and still pulls it off, doesn't get defeated. It's just gorgeous. Sounds beautiful. Oh, yeah, it's it's well worth checking out. So give me some more stuff that that you've been reading, Tonio. Okay. It's titled Non-Interference by Claire Brandt of the Mohawk Nation. The ethic of non-interference is a behavioral norm of North American Native tribes that promotes positive interpersonal relations by discouraging coercion of any kind, be it physical, verbal, or psychological. Manifestations of it have been observed and described by various scholars. A high degree of respect for every human being's independence leads the native to view instructing, coercing, or attempting to persuade another human being as undesirable behavior. Accordingly, group goals are arrived at by consensus and achieved by reliance on voluntary cooperation. The white man who can out-advise another is one up, and the individual over whom he has exerted influence is expected to take it all with good grace. In Native society, by contrast, such an attempt to exert pressure by advising, instructing, coercing, or persuading is always considered bad form or bad behavior. The advisor is perceived to be an interferer, his attempt to show that he knows more about a particular subject than the advisee would be seen as an attempt to establish dominance, however trivial, and he would be fastidiously avoided in the future. The ethic of non-interference, then, is an important social principle. The ethic of non-interference is one of the most widely accepted principles of behavior among Native people. It even extends to adult relationships with children and manifests itself as permissiveness. A native child may be allowed at the age of six, for example, to make the decision on whether or not he or she goes to school, even though he or she is required to do so by law. The child may be allowed to decide whether or not to do their homework, have his assignments done on time, or even visit the dentist. Native parents will be reluctant to force the child into doing anything that he or she does not choose to do. Most mainstream teachers and parents have trouble with this precept, especially when it comes to children. And here's some commentary on it from Darsha Narvaez. In our culture, there is a basic distrust of children to find their way without coercion. According to the dominant view, to be moral means to choose to act on principles, to act rationally as only humans can do, rather than acting on what you would like or desire. 
that children can only learn to be morally responsible adults after they've been coerced into obeying adults. In other words, a child has to learn not to develop or follow their intuitions about what is right, but to obey adult authorities instead. From an indigenous perspective, this approach breaks trust in one's own spirit. One's own intuitions undermines the development of the child's unique spirit. In indigenous communities around the world, children are not expected to subordinate their wills to those of others, but to align them over time, learning from a young age to coordinate and align their impulses to enhance relational connection and rapport to gain autonomy and learn respect for others. Indigenous societies typically honor children, displaying as a primary principle non-interference in the self-growth of the child. The child is assumed to be guided by an inner spirit. Coercion can interfere with that health-oriented guidance. Children are presumed autonomous agents from the time they are mobile. They can make their own decisions, are presumed independent, and not subject to rigid times for things like eating or sleeping. That's great, Tonio. You know, if there was ever a case to speak against indoctrination, you just read it. Yeah, this to me, this is so foundational. And Darsha has this concept of the evolved nest, which has to do with how to raise children. And this is something that's very dear to my heart, you know, parenting and education. And it's what we need in our culture. You know, there's that old thing where somebody asked Mahatma Gandhi what he thought of Western civilization. And he said, that would be a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> we, we are so uncivilized. We think we're civilized and we look down upon other cultures. But if you look at the heart of things, you can't help but see how how uncivilized we are, how inhumane, how immature. We're like petulant adolescents who are lashing out whenever we don't get what we want or whenever we don't like something. Yes. We have no maturity. We have no perspective. I think yeah. that, you know, particularly with this book coming along at this time, Tonio, it's really showing the void in our own culture. You know, in indigenous cultures, there wasn't, of course, the pragmatic of, you know, how are we going to get fed? How are we going to go hunting or grow plants, things like that? But there was a, a larger spiritual connection. So there was, in essence, a whole like mythology existed within that culture. So for the what you were just reading, for the child to grow into the existing mythology, and this is not indoctrination because the mythology is quite open-ended as far as where it can go, because it, it is like that early quote that you had about that, the mothers doing those lullabies about nature, that connection to nature and all the diversity and yet all the cooperation that happens within nature. We have lost that as a culture in terms of this larger umbrella. So there's nothing for us to grow into outside of what is it that we want rather than what is it that we need. And you're quite right. You know, that piece I'd sent to you recently about, you know, that our whole culture is in arrested development. And that's exactly what she's pointed out in that thing is like, well, it's because we're indoctrinating everybody with the wrong thing. And look at the results. 
We now have a fear-based culture in which there are more guns in America than the number actually outnumbers the number of citizens. It's appalling. And when it comes to, you know, the non-interference thing or advising, you know, it can be very difficult not to want to advise others who seem to need advising or guidance, especially from our perspective in this culture where where it seems like the majority of people are completely out to lunch. <laughs> um, but in the in the indigenous culture, elders, they don't lecture, they don't give advice. What they do is they tell stories. Yes. And then people are left to their own devices to understand, you know, in their own way, what the story means for them. And that that's very much related to the way they allow children to learn in their own way and to follow their own intuition, their own path, their own heart. But when they're brought up to live in harmony with the world around them, things just tend to go a lot better than they do in our culture where we are brought up separate from nature and, and out of alignment with our own natural way of being. Yeah. And, you know, we have such a tendency, and of course, this works fine for working on your car, but we want to fix everything. You know, therapy wants to fix you. You know, all the self-help books want to fix you. You know, this is a way to fix, 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 fix. And, you know, I got to a point like with my own practice with noetic balancing, if someone is asking for help, at that point, will I step up? If they're not asking for help, I think it's my job to stay with I don't know and leave it alone. Or if I can, you know, offer, say like, oh, you know, you may want to check out, you know, this film or this book or something that might give you some hints or something like that. That's the option. But I feel like in the past, I was imposing myself on people and thinking like somehow I had a better idea when the reality is I'm struggling just like everybody else. Yep. So here, maybe this is a way to wrap it up. There's a short poem by Joy Harjo, Native American from the Muscogee tribe. And she's our, I think she's finishing up her term as a poet laureate of the United States. It's called The Creation Story. So this kind of fits with just what we're talking about. She says, I'm not afraid of love or its consequence of light. It's not easy to say this or anything with my entrails dangle between paradise and fear. I'm ashamed I never had the words to carry a friend from her death to the stars correctly, or the words to keep my people safe from drought or gunshot. The stars who were created by words are circling over this house formed of calcium of blood. This house in danger of being torn apart by stones of fear. If these words can do anything, If these songs can do anything, I say, bless this house with stars, transfix us with love. There it is. Yeah, yeah. That's the basic way to live. And I think so many poets have been poking at this for a very, very long time because it really is the essence of this wild experience of being alive. And so how do we juggle the suffering and the joys and the griefs and all these things that we go through? 
and then still come to that mountain of love at the bottom of the hourglass at the end of Hayden Carruth's poem. Yep, one grain of sand at a time. Yes, exactly. I don't know if I have anything further to say to that, Tonio, because you are such a gift that we can have these conversations. And I can't tell you how much I look forward. It's like, ah, oh, I can connect to this human, lovely human being on the other side of the country. And connection is just another part of that beautiful thing called love. I love the level of vulnerability and emotion that you bring to these conversations. You bring all of you. And that's such a beautiful thing. And you share how you had gotten this feedback from someone that you know who pointed that out, how much they love the vulnerability that we bring to our conversations, particularly when we're talking about our own experience. And I love the way you do that. And you're there too, Tonio. And so it goes right back at you. And you know that dear friend, it's a, a woman friend in her late 70s, and she's particularly astonished that where we both go with these conversations for modern contemporary males, she thinks is just wonderful. And isn't it wonderful how natural it is for us to do that together? Yeah, this thing, it's really connection. And then, so I'm always like, you know, comparing notes and going like, oh, I could learn something here. This is great. Or like, I'm going to have a play date with my nine-year-old friend in the pool tomorrow. I always learn something with her because she has this enthusiasm for life and this curiosity. And just like, she just wants to go straight to joy from zero to 60 in less than two seconds. And I'm like, wow, to be reminded of that. And I always feel so special because here I am pushing 70 and she doesn't think that I'm even an old person at all. And I'm like, oh God, thank you so much for even considering that thought. Yeah, I love the way you, you describe that. Children are amazing. I like you, I love being around children for that exact same thing. And it's the depth of connection that brings the greatest joy. And, you know, with that, Tonio, you know, it's interesting because we do have, you know, a very long term Native American population here in Taos. They've been around, the Pueblo's been around for over 1,300 years. And so, of course, you know, their number that I know personally and their sense of youthfulness and particularly their sense of humor because it has the indigenous point of view in there, but they keep themselves young by that agility and that humor and that humility. And it is such a great thing for me to keep observing, to keep reminding myself like, oh, look how they're doing it and they're pulling it off. And that's why I look to children. I watch children and they teach me so much without any effort how to be you know, totally natural in the world. Yes. Yeah, the school of I don't know, isn't it the best? The school of not only I don't know, but isn't all this incredible? Yeah, yeah. So thank you for being so human, Tonio, and bringing that to the airwaves. It is such a pleasure and something I don't get to experience very often. So it's quite special what you're bringing. And thank you so much for being that human being that you are that I can play with in this world. <laughs> no, in, in our big old sandbox. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Brother, have a great day. And you too. Take care. 
my guest has been Rick Halterman. He's the author of Curriculum of the Soul and Luminescence of the Ordinary. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.